Good morning, Jubilee. Thank you, Pastor John, for this congregational reading. That is a word to my soul. Anybody in here need help? Anybody else in here need any help? <laughs> it's so good to recognize your need for help. What's even better is recognizing the place to where you get help. And to hear the description, as it says in Psalm 121, our help comes from the Lord. Now, if anybody in here is wondering, well, what type of help is this, right? It says, our help comes from the one who made heaven and who made the earth. Our help comes from the one who has created all things. That's some powerful help right there, amen? That's powerful. It's powerful help. And I pray that today he would, by this powerful help, grant us wonderful sights and wonderful knowledge and understanding from his word today. So I invite you to stand to your feet as we open up God's word. We're going to, back to the book of Ecclesiastes. And as a community of believers who have gathered to worship together, our God in Christ, let's continue our worship service as we gather around his word, as read and preached. Ecclesiastes, the eighth chapter, we want to read from verse number one through chapter nine, verse number 12. Ecclesiastes eight, verse number one. Who is like the wise and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. I say, keep the king's commands because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence, and do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing and the wise heart will know the proper time in the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? No man has the power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun when man had power over man to his hurt. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is Hebel. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because their fear they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. There is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is heaven. And I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. 
For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep, then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all since the same event happens to the, rich, to the righteous and to the wicked, to the good and to the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of men are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with your wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun because that is your portion in life and in your toil and what you toil under the sun. Whatever your hands finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor chance to those who have knowledge, but time and chance happens to them all. For man does not know his time. Like fish, they are taken in an evil net, and like birds, they are caught in a snare. So the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. Let's ask the Lord to help one more time. Father, your word is a lamp into our feet. It's a light into our path. May it be honey to our lips and by help from your powerful, precious Holy Spirit. Would you help us to see Christ in this? Would you help us to have our minds renewed by the word? And oh, Father, would we be conformed to the very image of your son? It's in his name we pray. Amen. You may have a seat. In Ecclesiastes 7, the preacher has marched us through various ways of living wisely underneath the sun. If you remember from last week, we saw a couple of ways that unpacks what wisdom is. It's wise to have a good reputation. It's wise to keep death in mind. It's wise to be joyful on good days and to reflect on bad days that both are from the hand of God. 
Well, the preacher here in chapter 8 continues to unpack what wisdom looks like under the sun. What he does here in this chapter is that he turns his attention to how the wise deals with being underneath authority. Our country has a unique history of dealing with authority, right? What is the commemoration of July 4th other than a celebration of authority that declared independence from British rule? Despite the presence and the indictment of enslaved Africans, the 13 colonies, in their desire for self-rule, had the audacity to usurp the authority of the king. This authority, this authority of self-rule, this authoritative self, as one author has put it, is deeply ingrained in all of us at a DNA level, right? Deeply ingrained in all of us is the almighty I and not the almighty I am. From the moment that Adam and Eve disobeyed God, the uh, humanity as a whole has grappled, grappled with anti-authorityism. Albert Einstein knew this well. He said this, he said, to punish me for my contempt of authority, fate made an authority, made me an authority myself. Our culture happily adds or and aids in our struggle with and suspicion of external authority. I want you to consider for a moment something that Jonathan Lehman has, writ has uh, written at some particular point. It's kind of long, but hang in there with me. Since the campaign that Western culture has been waging for several centuries for the individual has been a campaign waged against all forms of authority. From elementary school through graduate school, Western educators have taught us to question authority. Right? The authority of the church because of what it did to Galileo. The authority of the king because of his usurpations. The authority of the majority because of his tyrannies. The authority of males because of their exercise of brute strength and acts of oppression. The authority of the Bible because of its alleged contradictions. The authority of science because of its paradigm shifts. The authority of philosophy because of its language games. The authority of language because it has been deconstructed. The authority of parents because parents apparently aren't cool, right? The authority of police because of their fire hoses and their nightsticks. The authority of religious leaders because they make us drink the Kool-Aid. The authority of the media because of its biases. The authority of superpowers because of its imperialism. He goes on to ask this question, are there any authorities left to question? He goes on to say, when it comes to what we should believe and how we should live, a ubiquitous suspicion of authority lurks in the minds of most Westerners today, in part because we are so familiar with authority's savage history of abuses. Under the sun, in this Genesis 3 cursed world, there is no end to the history of the abuse of authority. Account after account has been given that testifies against the history of spiritual abuse in churches, the history of political abuse, the history of authoritarian abuse, and of course, the history of abuse from countless figures of authorities in personal lives like family members, school officials, coaches, etc., etc., etc. 
All these are examples of people in authority who use their power not for the flourishing and the good of others, but for the destruction and for evil purposes in individuals' lives. It does seem to be the case under the sun, seems to be the case, that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. The fact of the matter is though, with all of that being said, all of us, in one way or another, are underneath some sort of authority. Every single last one of us in this room finds ourselves underneath some authority, right? There's not a person that's on this planet that's not subjected to authority. To be human is to be under authority, it seems like. As creatures made not to just bear an image, but to bear the image of another, namely God, we cannot escape authority. In other words, no one, not one of us, in this world is autonomous. And since the preacher knows this well, he gives his audience some needed advice. Now, as we dive into this text, we must first place ourselves in the context of these verses, which is life that's lived underneath the rule of a king. By definition, a king was one with authority and sovereign power. And as a result, the king demanded total submission and total obedience. In fact, it was this prerogative of a king that actually kept the United States of America from having a king. I wonder if you have heard of the story of Prince Henry of Prussia. This was a story that I've not heard before. Anybody heard of Prince Henry of Prussia before, by way of hands? I didn't either. No one knows about Prince Henry? <laughs> Phil says, no, he doesn't know about right. Prince Henry of Prussia. Right. In 1786, Nathaniel Gorham, the, the president of the Continental Congress at that time, wrote to Prince Henry to become the king of the United States of America. The king. That don't even sound right coming out of my mouth. The king of the United States of America. Prince Henry obviously declined and listened to what he said his reason was. He said that the Americans have shown so much determination against their old king that they would not readily submit to a new king. Prince Henry knew what all Americans in our bones know, that it would be impossible in America to submit to a king. And yet, submission is what the king requires. It's what it means to be underneath a king. Right? The preacher understood this, so in verse number one and verse number two, he describes who a wise person is. He says, who is like the wise? Who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. I say, keep the king's commands because of God's oath to him. In preparation this week, I wrestle with what does verse one have to do with verse number two? At first glance, it's hard to see how the two even relate. With these first two questions in mind, the preacher has wise men in a royal court in his mind. These wise men interpreted signs or dreams so as to foretell the future of the king. Let me, let me give you a story here in a second. So he says, who is like the wise? The, the expected answer is no one. Who knows the interpre interpretation of a thing? The expected answer is no one knows the interpretation of a thing but a wise person. 
Now think with me back to, to see this in the story form, think with me back to Joseph in the court of Pharaoh in the book of Genesis. So what we get an understanding of wise men interpretation in a royal court. Remember that story? You remember that Pharaoh had a strange dream. He had a strange dream of seven thin cows eating and gobbling up seven fat cows. And he had a dream of seven thin and diseased stalks of grain gobbling up and eating up seven healthy and good stalks of grain. Of course, Pharaoh woke up from this dream and he was troubled by it. And no one in all of his administration, there wasn't a wise man available for him to get an interpretation of what this dream meant. Well, in this crisis, Pharaoh's cupbearer, chief cupbearer, remembered that there was somebody in prison who interpreted a dream before, and his name was Joseph. So Joseph got cleaned up, came into Pharaoh's presence, and heard about this dream that Pharaoh had. Joseph interpreted the dream for Pharaoh. There would be seven good years of growth and seven bad years of famine. And it was Joseph's suggestion that a wise man should come up with a wise plan. Pharaoh says to Joseph, you are that wise man. You can probably envision, if you are imagining this story in your mind, you can probably envision how Joseph's instance of wisdom at this particular point had a positive effect. Not only did this, not only did his face shine, but Pharaoh also brightened up because his dream was wisely interpreted. A wise man, in a sense, solved Pharaoh's problem. The teacher uses the use of wisdom in the presence of those who have authority with these, this first verse. Verse number two is what a wise person should do in the presence of the king. I say, keep the king's commands because of God's oath to him. A wise person, the preacher says, is one who obeys what the king commands. And in this instance, a person's obedience to the king was in essence the same as a person's obedience to God. Keep the king's command because of God's oath to him, right? Your Bible may have a small footnote next to this verse. If you trace your eyes down to the bottom of the page, it says, because of your oath to God. And I think this makes more sense of the context. The, the king's subjects, those who were underneath the king, would make a vow to God to be loyal to the king. So wise action number one, obey those who have authority over you. This, this wise advice is relevant for us today as much as it was relevant for the preacher's audience back in his day. No, we are obviously not underneath the authority of an earthly king, but as I mentioned earlier, we all live underneath authority in some way or another. In Romans 13, 1 was written to Christians. It says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. The governing authorities range anywhere from actual government and all of its entities, all the way to the governing authorities of your employer or children of your parents or even your local church that you are a member of, right? This command to be subject in obedience to the governing authority rests on the fact that their authority is only a shadow of the authority of God. Romans 13 goes on to say, for there is no authority except from God, and those who exist have been instituted by God. 
Romans 13 gives, goes on to give us a natural inference from this understanding of authority. It says, therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers, those in authority, are not a terror to good conduct but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who's in authority? Then do what is good and you will receive his approval. For he, the person in authority, is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. Now my, my anti-authorityism has raised an objection in my own soul as I listen to Romans 13 and the preacher's advice here. Questions arise up like, well, what if it's bad authority? Right? What, if it's, what if it's from a government's overuse of Romans 13 as a justification to obey an unjust order? What if it comes from an untrusted authority? These questions would make for a good conversation over lunch today. I encourage you to have them. Bruce Ashford said it well, though. Says Paul in saying in Romans 13, in effect, you should be a good citizen and obey the law, except, of course, when God's law conflicts with Caesar's law. In that case, we must obey God rather than man and accept the consequences. But the Lord grant us grace to do so if we ever find ourselves in that position. Verses 3 and 4 gives us another piece of advice from the preacher. Now, both of these verses emphasize that the king will do whatever he wants to do. It says, for he does whatever he pleases, and his word is supreme. In other words, the king is sovereign. This is what makes a king a king. He can use his power for good, or as verse 9 says in chapter 8, he can use his power over another person to that person's hurt. This is why if you were on the receiving end of a king's pronouncement, you would hesitate, you would pause for a second to say to the king, what are you doing? You would hesitate because you know that how you respond to the king matters. The preacher says in light of this, be not hasty to go from his presence and do not take your stand in evil and an evil cause. Both of these actions would have been interpreted as signs of disrespect. Leaving quickly could have been interpreted that you disagreed with the king. Has anybody ever walked out of a room in the middle of a disagreement because you did not agree with the person that you find yourself arguing with? Do not take your stand in an evil cause. This could mean, press, this could mean don't press your point even when the king has already disagreed with you. If the king has already said no to something, don't press this point. This would be an evil cause in this instance. I know probably there are people in here who like pressing their point, who don't take no for an answer. The preacher said it would be wise for you not to be like that in front of the king. Verse number five, the preacher shows us that he actually has our good in mind with this instruction. Whatever or whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time in the just way. This, of course, doesn't mean that it will always go right for the wise person in the presence of the king. Since the, the king can do whatever he wants, you don't know which way he will go. But more often than not, though, it will go well. 
The wise person knows that there is a time and a way for everything. A wise person knows when it's time to speak up and when the proper procedure is even keeping quiet. Again, even though we don't serve an earthly king, there's a great principle in these verses for all of us who find ourselves underneath some sort of authority. There's a wisdom that's required in dealing with those who are in authority over us, especially if the authority over us is bad authority or operates their authority in a bad or wicked way. A wise person knows that there is a proper time and that there's a just way when we find ourselves underneath authority. To make it more concrete, listen to Peter's words in 1 Peter as he spoke to Christians who found themselves underneath an ungodly and dangerous authority figure in the emperor. Listen to his words in 1 Peter. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. He, he points them to their identity and who they are. He says, which weighs against your soul. He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation. Be subject, and notice this part, for the Lord's sake. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. This is applicable to us who find ourselves underneath authority. The preacher shifts on us here in verse number six. Although wisdom has its benefits, as chapter seven and as the beginning of chapter eight has shown us, wisdom also has some serious limitations. He reiterates that there is a time and a way for everything. However, there's a trouble that lies heavy on humanity like a thick duvet blanket. When I got married, I got introduced to what a duvet was. Duvets are thick. They could be hot. There's something that lies thick on mankind like a duvet blanket is. Verse number seven, for he does not know what it is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? In other words, humans don't know the future, right? Humans don't know the future. You, you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. NBA fans just got a front row seat to this in this past week. For all of my non-sports brothers and sisters and friends in here, the NBA season ends always with a big bang. Right? We have the NBA Finals. In the middle of the NBA Finals, the NBA Draft, where hearts like mine was broken when my New York Knicks did not get the number one pick in the draft. After the NBA Finals comes the, um, without NBA Lottery comes the NBA Draft and the awards of the season. And then we come up on this time called free agency. Free agency is a, a wonderful time for basketball fans because players can switch teams and it changes the whole dynamic of the league at times. And this year was huge because in free agency, free agency was this phrase called the five K's. 
There were five players whose first name started with a K who became free agents and they can go wherever they wanted to go. One of those players was a guy named Kawhi Leonard. If you ever heard, Kawhi Leonard just delivered the very first championship to the entire country of Canada about a month ago, right? The whole country of Canada has never celebrated an NBA championship until Kawhi Leonard came and beat the Golden State Warriors with the Toronto Raptors. They don't even sound right coming out of my mouth. The Toronto Raptors won the NBA championship less than a month ago, but he's a free agent. So all the talk of the week is, is where is Kawhi gonna sign next? Is he gonna sign back with Toronto and try to win another championship? Or is he gonna go to the LA Lakers or to the LA Clippers? There was a sports analyst, a guy named Chris Boussard, who declared earlier in the week that Kawhi Leonard was not going to go to the Clippers. Kawhi Leonard went to the Clippers. It's hard to know the future. It's hard to say what's going to happen. It's hard to know what's going to be. We may think we may, we may think we'd be able to conjure up what's going to happen in the future, but it's hard to know. Humans are not good at predicting the future. And because it's hard to predict the future, wisdom, as beneficial as wisdom is, all we've seen throughout Ecclesiastes is that wisdom is better than folly or silliness or stupidity. As beneficial as a wisdom is, it has serious, serious limitations. When wisdom comes face to face with its limitations, you can see at times how wisdom may not work as well. Wisdom's limitations is that it doesn't know what's going to happen next. And not only that, wisdom's limitation comes face to face with not knowing what God is up to in the earth. If you shoot to verse number 16 and 17 in, verse no, in chapter number 8, you'll see him saying this. He says, when I determined to load up on wisdom, this is another version I'm reading to you. When I determined to load up on wisdom and examine everything taking place on the earth, I realized that if you keep your eyes open day and night without even blinking, you still will never figure out the meaning of what God is doing in the earth. Search as hard as you like you're not going to make sense of it. No matter how smart you are, you won't get to the bottom of it. Doesn't that just ring true? Does that ring true of your experience of life under the world that is hard to figure out what's going on, hard to figure out why the world is the way the world is, to figure out the brokenness and the, the, the cruelty and the things that seem to be unfair? Doesn't, it, doesn't this ring true? It's hard to figure out what God is up to in the world. I got to constantly remind myself that this current moment in the pulpit, I don't even know what's going on at this very moment across the street in the house over there across the way. I don't even know what's going on right now in the house across the street, let alone knowing what God is up to. We don't know. The two areas that the preacher keeps coming back to that proves his point concerning wisdom's limitations. Area number one concerns the wicked and the righteous. And area number two concerns death. Look at verse number 10, still in chapter 8, 10 through 14. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is heaven. 
because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of men is set fully to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that, there will, that it will be well for those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear, he does not fear, there, he does not fear before God. It says there is a vanity that takes place on earth that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is heaven. The preacher is following his own advice and he finds himself in the house of mourning. One of the most sacred acts then and now is the burial of a human body. Biblical times, it was a great misfortune not to have a proper burial. But in, in this burial, the preacher finds something that's heavy. He finds something that is an enigma, something that is a mystery, something that's utterly senseless. In this burial, the wicked is receiving accolades from the living. We, we see that the wicked person had the audacity to flaunt his presence in and out of the temple. This person seemed to have had no regard for the instruction of guarding one's steps as you go into the house of the Lord. He, he seemed to have had no regard for being one who feared the Lord. And the living praised this wicked person. He they praised the one who was wicked at his burial. Apparently, this wicked person not only prospered in his wickedness for a long period of time, but he, by his lifestyle, encouraged others to follow along in his wickedness. Look at verse number 11. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Because this person seemed to have gotten away with his wickedness, seemed to have had been delivered from his wickedness, others thought that they would be able to do so also. In other words, if he could get away with it, then I can get away with it. How many of y'all have ever gotten in trouble with that type of philosophy right there? That if my boy got away with it, surely I can get away with it also. Jesus gives us a stern warning about leading and causing others to go and fall into sin. He said that it would be better if a millstone would be tied around a person's neck and that he be drowned in the sea than to encourage sin in another person's life. Now this imagery would have rocked Jesus' audience because all day and every day they saw this familiar structure called a millstone. A millstone was an everyday tool that was used to grind grain. There were two stones that were used. You had the bottom stone, the base stone, where the grain was placed, and on top of it, you had what was known as the runner stone that was placed on top of the grain and turned so it can crush it and crush it and crush it. Some runner stones were so big that they had to actually use animals to turn them. And Jesus said, it's better for you to take one of those things, tie it around your neck, go jump in Lake Manitaka before you cause somebody else to sin. Yet this wicked man received praise in his burial. 
Traditional wisdom comes into the preacher's mind as he is witnessing this funeral. Look at verse number 12. It says, though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. Oh, Jubilee. Jubilee, 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 Jubilee. Would we know, would we know this through and through, right? Would we know when tempted with wickedness that it only goes well with those who fear the Lord? When temptation comes our way and evil desires seek to persuade us of the pleasures of sin, would we remember that it does not go well for the wicked? Would we know this? When our soul enters into a boxing ring of struggle as we gaze upon the prosperity of the wicked and the longevity of those who want nothing to do with God, would this word be in your corner speaking to you, encouraging you, saying to your soul, I know that it will be well with those who fear God. Soul, don't be jealous because you have a greater treasure. The preacher just ended here. He would have done his audience a disservice. The limitations of wisdom is that life often paints another picture. Look at verse number 14. There's a vanity that takes place on earth that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this is also heaven. This is a mystery that wisdom cannot solve. Yes, the preacher knows that it will be well with those who fear the Lord, and it will not be well for those who don't. And yet, what he saw and what we see so often in life is that bad things happen to good people and good things happen to bad people. Truly, we cannot find out why God has determined this crookedness. This is a crookedness that we must live in tension with. Wisdom also finds its limitation in explaining death. If you remember us reading chapter 9, verses 1 through 6, and chapter 9, verses 11 through 12, it speaks about how death is the end of all of us. And wisdom is up against a limitation of understanding how death can happen to, as the scripture says, somebody who is righteous and somebody who is wicked, somebody who is good and somebody who is evil. How is it that Later on in that verse, or in, in chapter 9, he says, how is it that the race is not given to the swift, the battle not to the strong? How is it that man does not know his time? How is it that death comes upon us all? This is a limitation that wisdom is not able to get his hands around. As we read in these, 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 this section of Scripture, in both of these limitations— this limitation that wisdom have concerning the righteous and the wicked and limitation concerning death, notice that the preacher commends joy. We've heard this time and time and time and time again in Ecclesiastes that under the sun, he commends joy. Joy looks like enjoying your spouse. Joy looks like eating your bread with joy. Joy looks like finding gain and joy in your toil. This leaves us with the first half of our Heat Academy lesson from Under the Sun. Under the Sun, wisdom is necessary but limited. 
Wisdom is under the sun. Wisdom is necessary. We must have wisdom, but it is limited. Well, what about the second half of our Heat Academy lesson? If under the sun, wisdom is necessary and limited, above the sun, wisdom is a person in the power of God. Wisdom is a person, and wisdom is the power of God. Shoot with me over to 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 1. Paul spoke a lot about wisdom in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 1, we'll look at verse number 18. First Corinthians 1, listen to how Paul speaks about wisdom in verse number 18 all the way through down to the end of that chapter. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? That's a familiar question. Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the, wicked, the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. Christ became wisdom to us from God. Righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, that the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. Jesus is the answer to our limited knowledge of mankind and our limited wisdom. Apart from Christ, we will never truly be wise. Christ is the wisdom of God in the sense that in the wisdom of God, he put forth Christ as a means for our salvation. It's not by the wisdom of this world that we are saved. It is by the wisdom and the wise plans of God to save through Jesus. It's not by the wisdom of this world that we know God. It is in his wisdom so that humans not boast that we know him only through his son. I want you to consider how Christ is our wisdom and power from God in the areas that we discussed this morning. Christ is our wisdom in dealing with authority. Do you remember what it says in Ephesians and in 1 in Peter? Ephesians 6, 5 through 8 says, Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling with a sincere heart as you would Christ not by way of our service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord, 
and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or free. Or consider 1 Peter 2, verse 18 through 25, particularly when the authority is bad. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrow when while suffering unjustly. It says, do this because Christ has been given an example of one who has done this. Christ also suffered for you, living you examples so that you may follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges, judges justly. Notice how Christ transforms our stance underneath authority. Our actions towards those are not dependent on the ones who are in authority over us. It follows the example of Christ who entrusted himself to the true king who judges justly, especially, especially to those whom he has given authority to, authority to and especially to those who use it in a bad way. Christ is our wisdom in dealing with the limitations we discussed today concerning the paradox and intention of the wicked and the righteous. When we read Ecclesiastes 8.14, did it remind you of someone? Let me read it to you again. There's a vanity that takes place on earth that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. It's popular these days to ask, why do bad things happen to good people? And why do good things happen to bad people? If the scriptures are true, and the scriptures tell us that they are actually no good and righteous people, then the more important question to ask is, why do good things happen to us at all? The fact of the matter is that there's only one instance of injustice where a righteous person got what the wicked deserved. This person is Christ, right? The wisdom from God. For our sake, he, who, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. And because this happened, and because this happened, the wicked, us, we get what Christ the righteous deserved. This changes the game when our souls struggle with the prosperity and the longevity of the wicked. We're reminded that this happened to us in Christ. And through the power of Christ, we entrust our souls to the one who can judge justly. It gives us grace to make it to the end where we will see all things be put together as they ought to be. Lastly, how is Christ our wisdom and power in dealing with the limitations of death? You're in 1 Corinthians, the first chapter, shoot over to the last chapter, 1 Corinthians 15. Then notice how Christ helps us as our wisdom in this limitation. In 1 Corinthians 15, he goes on to say, Paul says, I tell you this, brothers and sisters, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. 
For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall it come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. If under the sun... Wisdom is necessary and limited. Above the sun, wisdom is found in the person of Christ, and Christ is the power that we have to walk in wisdom. So as always, under the sun, I commend to you Jesus. This is how we live life in this Genesis 3 cursed world. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would grant much grace to us to see in Christ the limitations of wisdom blown completely off. In Christ, all the treasures of wisdom are hid. And in Christ, you have made him to be our wisdom. So would we trust in him? Will we look to him for our salvation? And will we look to him for power to make wise decisions as we live life under the sun? It's in his name we pray. Amen.